welcome to a special episode of 13. Today we've assembled five Colgate professors who have insights to share about the ongoing war in Ukraine. Because the geopolitical situation seems to change on an hourly basis, I think it's important to share that this recording is being made on Monday, March 28th, 2022. Joining the podcast today is Associate Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies and Director of Colgate's Russian and Eurasian Studies Program, Jessica Graybill. Director of LGBTQ Plus Initiatives, Lyosha Gorshikov. Assistant Professor of Political Science, Masha Hedberg. Associate Professor of Political Science, Valerie Morkevichis, and Professor of Anthropology, Nancy Reese. Shortly after Russia's February 24th invasion of Ukraine, the faculty members at Colgate gathered um, to host an online discussion for the Colgate community about the conflict. During that forum, community members submitted a lot of questions about the war, and today we're going to work on answering some of those outstanding questions, along with others that have bubbled to the surface in the weeks since the start of the invasion. So welcome all to the podcast. Uh, I will also note this is the most faculty members we've had on the show at one time, so I'm very grateful that we've been able to assemble everyone here. And I will start things off with the first question, and, and that would be, why did Vladimir Putin decide to launch this war? What is the benefit to Putin to invade Ukraine at such a high cost? Who would okay. like to start things off? I can start Yosha? as a person who lived there for 29 years and under Putin. So basically, um, to my mind, uh, for the Putin, I call it the Putin dictator, right? Uh, it's a continuation of his policies because he was um, nostalgic about the Soviet Union. When he uh, was a KGB officer and collapse of the Soviet Union. He was kicked out of the Eastern Germany. And uh, his idea of that strong statehood did not leave him. And when he came to power, it was uh, a lot of factors involved. So, of course, first he played, I will never do anything like that. We will never go back to Soviet Union. But if you look at the geopolitical uh, map of the post-Soviet countries. A lot of them did not follow the Russian lead. Russia has lost its colonial, imperial attitude. And uh, when Georgia uh, proclaimed they're going to be independent, they launched the revolution. Ukraine launched the revolution in 2004. Uh, Kyrgyzstan launched the revolution. And Putin understood that he will be trapped in that geopolitical situation that other countries uh, who he considered allies will not support him. And in 2013, Yevromaidan, right? So uh, Maidan in Ukraine and the revolution against Yanukovych, who was absolutely a puppet of the Putin's regime. And 2020, Belarus, uh, all protests which uh, shaken the regime of Alexander Lukashenko, who has been in power over 26 years. And recently, Kazakhstan, when they launched a huge protest since the first, like, 1990s, right, uh, against the uh, Nazarbayev clan, who was ruling the country for a long time. So Putin, as a typical maniacal dictator, is afraid that somebody will come after him and who will be overthrown, especially in with NATO, uh, NATO expansion, with the uh, Ukraine leaning towards European Union, towards Western values. So basically, it's just um, the protecting himself and his cronies from being overthrown because they know they committed a lot of crimes along the way since he has been in power uh, in 2000. So for him, it's survival, absolutely survival of his personal um, benefits, the personal regime and his oligarchs and military 
people. So that's why. Uh, and also, I guess something inside is also his ambitions. His ambitions, he is absolutely Napoleon, but in the most weird uh, style. So, and now he has nothing to lose and he has, you know, uh, he cannot control his emotions anymore. So that's why he's launching this mm. terrible attack. So, but it's dictatorial, t- typical continuation. The people say they're so surprised. Remember 2008, uh, a Georgian war. Remember 2014, Crimea. Remember other things when he has done. So I, I'm not surprised. I'm surprised to the extent how it's launched. Professor Grable? Yeah, I'd love to add to that, Leosha. <clears throat> for thinking about this for just a second, you've raised so many good points. What I'd like to add is that this is a lot about the desire for territory mm-hmm. in that great power. So I'll go back to something I mentioned briefly in the panel. Actually, I don't remember if it was briefly or not. Something I mentioned in the panel, this idea of Dirjava, uh, which means great power, right? Dirjava in Russian means great power in English. And that part of that great power is a spatial aspect to it. There's a geographic aspect to Dirjava, to great power. And that's about holding territory, possessing territory almost at any cost from what we've seen in this war so far. Anyone else like to add anything? I do wonder, um, was there um, miscalculation on behalf of Putin? It seems like his intelligence service would have known that some that this would not be this, you know, easy kind of waltz into Kiev that, you know, it, it ended up obviously not being. Um, what so, happened? So I think there was a lot of misreading on the part of Putin, possibly because he was indeed misinformed by advisors, intelligence officers who are probably, you know, reluctant or afraid to reveal truthful information. But there does seem to be this calculation about other geopolitical factors that were going on that help us better understand why now. So, For example, Zelensky now incredibly popular in Ukraine. But let's remember that prior to the invasion, his actual approval ratings in Ukraine were very low. So from Putin's perspective, Possibly the idea was that Ukraine would not rally behind such an unpopular president because for a while, actually, Zelensky's approval ratings were in the 20s. So there was this idea that would Ukraine rally behind an unpopular, young, untested president? And it's very possible they thought that, no, this would not be a wartime leader that would be as formidable as he's turned out to be. I also think there's this idea that the West in general would not become so unified and so quickly. We've had two years of the coronavirus pandemic. And again, I think from Putin's perspective, there was this idea that European economies, the American economy, you know, and the leadership thereof would be more concerned about returning to normal, reviving the economy. And so there's this opportunity. It's very possible to see how they would see this as a propitious moment to do something like this because the West is distracted. I think they were also betting on the fact that American politics, which has become so incredibly polarized over the past, well, it's hard to say how many years, but let's say a decade, where there's this idea that maybe the American president would itself be hobbled by the divisions within the United States, and so the response would not be nearly as forceful as what we've seen so far. So there's also this, again, domestic politics within Russia, certainly are a key reason for the invasion, but thinking about kind of the wider set of circumstances that could have led the Russian leadership to think that now is a propitious moment to launch something as audacious as this also need to be considered. I'd like to add one piece of infrastructure to thinking about this, and that is Nord Stream 2. So the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was completed last September, 
And the only step left in making that pipeline go live was certification of the pipeline. That is the only thing that had not happened at the start of this war. And I think Putin here thought, oh, green light, right? This pipeline is done. It's a done deal. It's going to go straight from Russia to Germany. We're all good here, Ukraine and its pipeline infrastructure. Whether it was working very well or not is another question. But that transit country, Ukraine is a transit country with pipelines across it, was no longer seen as necessary in the same way, which opened the door then for all of these empire uh, grabs, land grabs, these imperialistic land grab feelings to come up. And it was just in the right moment for all of that to come together again. I guess the one piece also with Masha briefly mentioned that uh, Putin miscalculated that he didn't understand that Ukraine has uh, raised or has increased their identity. They uh, got the identity since the 1991 and since especially 2004 and 2013. So he still operating and the mindset of the Soviet that we are empire, that's our Ukraina, Ukraina, it's like on the outskirts of the empire, so they will not rail against me and they're going to meet us with the bread and salt, right? So he has not uh, even thought about that Ukrainian people will defend every piece of land because their identity is against the imperialism, anti-colonial. Do you think there is a significant threat to other former Soviet countries that may not be able to defend themselves against a full-scale Russian attack? So looking at this from the perspective of the, the Baltic states, for example, the, the political leadership there is quite confident, at least publicly, that membership in NATO will make all the difference, that because they are NATO members, it would be really foolish for Putin to, um, what's the word, uh, to not accelerate, expand, to expand the war in, in that way because it would bring in uh, NATO powers. Um, and also the U.S. decision, but the decision of, of other countries like Denmark and the U.K. to send more troops um, to the Baltics has also made them feel more, more comfortable. So I think there is a risk, particularly if Putin feels like he's pushed into a corner, that he might want to, to lash out at the Baltics or at Poland, who have been quite loud in their condemnation of, of the aggression against Ukraine. But I, at this point, I still think it's it's a very low percentage likelihood event. I think there's a couple other aspects to think, too. Um, sometimes lashing out isn't actually maybe about warfare on the ground, um, but it can be economic as well. And so we're, we're maybe starting to see this a little bit in Kazakhstan right now. With the uh, There's been a pretense of a storm on the Caspian pipeline uh, that goes from within Kazakhstan to Novorossiysk, um, in Russia on the Black Sea coast. <clears throat> this is oil that would make it to Europe as well. And Kazakhstan, because of this pretense of a storm, flow of the, of the gas, oil and gas going through this pipeline has halted. Now, it's a very, very small percentage, less than 2% of the oil and gas that might make it across this transit area, the Caspian Sea, Ukraine, to Europe. But this is a little mini message. It's a little economic mini message, perhaps, of things that could come um, warfare being waged in economic directions as well towards other former Soviet countries. So I think there's also a, a misapprehension by Putin and his regime in inner circle that um, if there are Russian-speaking or people who are counted as Russian ethnic 
populations within the Baltics as there are within the Central Asian countries, within Ukraine, that, that that creates a natural identification alliance and loyalty to the Kremlin. And I think what the last month has really shown is that that's a, a, a total mythos in most cases. And as reporting from Ukraine now, even from uh, Eastern Ukrainian communities that seemed before the invasion to be somewhat pro Kremlin, pro-Russian, et cetera, that even in those regions, those communities, uh, the population is turning, the, the Russian-speaking population that Putin counted on is really turning against the Kremlin's war. And I yeah. guess also the very important fact that the whole world, so those post-Soviet countries, they were kind of looking what the reaction will be of the West. And when they seen that they backed up the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian government, Zelensky, they understood. So they are not, of course, they're always back and forth because they depend on the Putin. They sometimes they follow its, uh, his politics. But at the same time, they understood if Putin is going to be trialed as a war criminal and they don't want to have anything aligned with that because their regimes will uh, crack as well. So that's why now they're uh, on the side of the power on the side of the uh, popular opinion uh, rather than, you know, on their loyalty because Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, Azerbaijan, they were always loyal to Putin and they followed a lot of policies implemented in Russia. They just uh, exported that. But that unified front, I guess that's a big slap into the face of Putin because he was confident he controls SNG, mm -hmm. uh, which was dead, actually. And all of a sudden he revived that union of independent states uh, of post-Soviet countries. Yeah. I think what's also very telling right now is that Azerbaijan is clearly using this opportunity to mm -hmm. pursue its own yeah. ends, right, by sending kind of military troops to reclaim Nagorno-Karabakh. Mm -hmm. right? So it's clear that even the countries within the former Soviet Union are actually pursuing their own interests rather mm -hmm. than unequivocally yes. supporting Russia's foreign But that's policy. also the very scary moment, right? If there's recapture of certain places by other, shall we say, dictatorial regimes, authoritarian regimes, hybrid democratic authoritarian regimes, we could see a trend here that's, you know, regional, if not larger. What do you all think about the current response? So the sanctions that have been imposed, NATO's response, the um, the arming that has been done of the Ukrainians, like what do you think about what the world has done in response so far? What could it do better? What were some missteps? I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to hear what you folks think about where things stand now and whether or not um, you think that it will work. Hmm. I think not enough. I think what I hate when NATO and the United States keep saying, we don't want to interfere because we're afraid of World War III, but it is the World War III already. So when they say, okay, Ukraine, you can die, but when one piece of Putin's soldiers go into Poland, we're going to defend each piece of territory of NATO. And sanctions, it's a very peculiar thing. So yes, they uh, hit 
badly hit all the guards, and now they're saying bizarre things, how I'm going to survive without a driver and coo- and chief, right? But at the same time, you have to understand that they are kind of still dependent on Russian oil, on the gas. And uh, Finland, actually, Finnish prime minister was so... That's a good response ever I heard from any European leaders. And she basically says uh, in the interview, for us, oil and gas seems more important than people's lives. So she was very blunt and she was pushing the, uh, to cut the ties. So sanctions, yes, good. But uh, at the same time, it's not enough. Sell, sending uh, air, aircraft, air, sending uh, military um, uh, weapons, whatever, it's good. But no-fly zone is not implemented, which is, like, crucial, and people still besieged in Mariupol. People, uh, Lviv was bombed yesterday, right? So it's not enough. So the West basically allows it to happen because they're afraid, and I don't know who advised them, because it's literally 1939, it's 1938, even Munich agreement between uh, European countries and Hitler. So that's why I'm like, no, it's not enough. It's not enough. So I I think the... The sanctions, I, I, I can both agree and disagree with Lyosha here. I think that the sanctions are kind of surprising in how far-ranging they are, given the diversity of opinions with amongst EU countries and NATO countries. And we should also uh, keep in mind that, that some of the other large world economies like Japan, South Korea, Singapore have joined this sanctioned regime, which is pretty un- unprecedented. I agree, though, that that continuing to buy oil and gas undermines the effectiveness of that that sanctions regime. I think on, on the matter of sending weapons to Ukraine, it seems that there has been more talk than action on this mm-hmm. subject. So, uh, and, and I don't quite understand, and I think that, that some of the talk has actually undermined the the ability of, of Ukraine's allies to actually send weapons. So, for example, there's this big debate about whether Poland... Uh, should or could provide um, fighter jets to to Ukraine. Um, if it had happened more quietly, then it would probably be done by now. But there was such a public display and discussion of how this was all going to work um, that I think it, it ended up backing NATO into a corner because I do think there is a difference uh, f- in sort of geostrategic terms between uh, sending lethal aid to Ukraine and participating directly in in the conflict. Um, And from uh, one point of view, I I understand the desire to try to close the skies over over Ukraine, although uh, most of the attacks are happening with artillery and not not aircraft. But uh, a no-fly zone would involve uh, NATO jets having to make a choice about whether or not to shoot down Russian jets and whether or not to pursue them um, back to their to their air bases. And even if they just decided to, to interfere by being there, there would be the risk of, of an accident that could, could lead to a larger conflict. Um, there are some analysts who are, who are asking the same question that Yosha is asking, though, should we be so worried about that, right? Uh, the... the uh, sort of lack of professionalism and inefficient strategy uh, that we're seeing from Russian forces raises some questions about whether our worries are misplaced. That being said, right, Putin does still have a nuclear arsenal with intercontinental nuclear missiles. Um, 
And and that I think is one of the things that that you know none of the NATO allies can be sure whether direct participation would cross a, a, a Russian red line. So, for me, I'm not very excited about the idea of direct NATO participation right now. But I do think that there should be more lethal aid if we're going to be serious yeah. about Ukraine defending itself. Mm-hmm. And it, it has to be done quickly. But I also think it, it should be done quietly with a little less chat and a little more action. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I strongly agree with that. And I think uh, I think a real opportunity was missed in the very early days or even before the invasion. There were, there were many signs this invasion was being mounted um, to provide uh, javelins, stingers, and other missiles that could actually do something from the ground of Ukraine to... Uh, protect Ukraine against some of those attacks. Not all of those attacks, but some of those attacks could have been could have been halted. Um, and even now, there are there are, um, anti uh, anti missile systems and anti aircraft systems that could be brought into Ukraine that are not being supplied very quickly. And I totally agree with the just shut up, be quiet, and just do it approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that should, that approach should have been taken even, you know, several years ago when, when there were so many signals that this was a possibility. Or in February, in, right? When, in January. When, yeah, in January yeah. and, and early February right. when, you know, the Biden administration was trying to undermine uh, the the element of surprise by saying it's, it's clear that an invasion is intended. Yeah. Well, that would have been a, an excellent moment, mm-hmm. right, right, to sort of pre-position defensive forces in larger amounts into into Ukraine. Um, although, with a slight asterisk, whether Zelensky would have accepted at that point is a little unclear because of his attempt to message and 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 uh, that you know, to, to argue that there shouldn't be a war, that we're not a threat. I think he was still trying to seek a peaceful resolution. Despite all the information that he was getting, I think he was really looking for a non-conflictual way out, which means he might not have accepted large large donations, but, but it should have been offered. I guess what are the steps or are there ideal next steps for um, de-escalation? Like what could be done um, to, I don't know, give Russia an off-ramp or to find a way to, uh, you know, end the armed conflict? It's a very hypothetical question because, first of all, it's going to be the war lasting years and the consequences of that war will be very severe even for the whole global economy and global peace. Uh, for Putin, because he is already cornered and we totally understand and people who lived in Russia and who understand a little bit his dictatorial mindset and you can see that uh, he already replaced 1,000 of his uh, immediate servants because he's afraid of uh, being taken of the power he Kind of the um, defense man, minister all of a sudden had a heart attack, by the way, so which uh, speaks the volume. So now already knowing that he has lost the momentum, he has lost the war, he will be going into like a, uh, attacks which will last for some, some, some time. And he will uh, independent until what I believe, until he's gone, until he loses the power, because... He he is not gonna compromise. He's not gonna do any peace talk. He is not Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. He's not gonna sit in Potsdam conference, uh, and because they were united against one. So I think the only physical 
uh, disappearance of Putin. But even so, after that, we don't know who might take a power in Russia, how they will approach, what it will be. So, I don't know. I don't see the exit except Putin is destroyed physically. And Putinists. Yeah, right? and Putinists. So, yes. so what you've alluded to, Lyosha, is really important here for thinking about the fact that Putin has replaced or removed lots of his advisors and people mm. in lots of positions. This is not a new move. This is a very Soviet move, a very Stalin move. Mm -hmm. um, remove those with knowledge right below you. Uh, replace them with others who are seemingly, bold. utterly loyal. It's a bold move. It also results in a lack of awareness and knowledge of what could possibly be going on. And that is all by design. Um, so we're talking about removing Putin, but also Putinists. Uh, but if we talk about who could possibly replace that, there's a void. But I also think that Western policy shouldn't hinge on the idea of removing Putin. In mm -hmm. fact, I think speaking those terms does not make the situation better. It is fine for kind of academics and policy kind of think tanks right, to contemplate the pos possibility that the war comes to an end only if a new government takes place in Russia. Right? But at the same time, I do think it is rather dangerous for actual governments engaged in diplomacy at the moment to speak in any terms which connote that they want regime change. For example, the big gaffe that Biden recently, that has just stirred up a lot of talk following his otherwise very effective speech. So I think that while we can contemplate the possibility of whether or not this war can come to an end, given the current leadership remaining in office, I think for governments, they need to find other solutions rather than hoping right, or expecting such a change to occur. I think that's a great point, Masha, partially also because of the support for Putin from within Russia, not by all Russians, certainly, by, but by many. Even if it's through propaganda, there is a lot of support uh, for Putin right now. Um, in fact, I've heard from some people that I know that uh, the, the sanctions that have happened against Russia are welcomed uh, because it will get rid of the oligarch class. Right? This is an idea out there among many, you know, common Russians outside of, say, Moscow and St. Petersburg. And who is being thanked for that? Putin. Hmm. But I want to clarify it. So I didn't mean interference of the Western. I was mostly hoping from within that it could be a coup, which might happen, but uh, which in the history, a couple of them were successful. Uh, 1991 failed, as we remember. But I think the sanctions and everything which will push the oligarchs to the point they might get rid of him because they're losing the value, they're losing the wealth which they acquired because of him. He, so I'm most, I'm not, I do not believe in any Russian revolution and never was and never existed. It was the idea of Russian bunt, Ruski bunt, Russian rebellion is very exaggerated because Russian people will never they do not have access to that. So that's why from within, maybe somebody will feed him with his Novichok. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just hoping. So um, I, I actually think that the, the sanctions regime, however, may have sort of hard to actually uh, anticipate how they're going to unfold, exactly how they're going to work. 
Um, but in contrast to the last, especially the last since since 2014 and the sanctions regime that fell, that wasn't very strong, but that fell after the invasion of Crimea and the and uh, and Eastern Ukraine, this sanctions regime is actually for all of the holes, the oil and gas still flowing, et cetera, for all of the holes that it has, is having an immediate and pretty dramatic impact on Russian industrial production and Russian food production and other, uh, you know, consumables production. And um, in, so in contrast to the constant statements from the Kremlin over the last few years and from the from Putin's media that Russian domestic economy is self-sufficient, mm -hmm. what we're seeing right now is astonishing breakdowns in the, in the especially the industrial supply chain. So, for example, they, um, one of the largest Russian, Soviet Russian car companies, uh, Avtovaz, is, has just... Um, announced that um, because they rely so much on components, especially electrical compo electronic components flowing in from uh, from Europe, uh, that they can't actually produce cars, and that they're they they announced yesterday that they're now going to be producing cars that don't have heating and air conditioning systems and that don't have anti-lock brake systems because the supply chain is dependent on those kinds of parts. I think what we're starting to see is the, um, you know, the sudden, it's going to be sudden in different sectors, in different places for different com companies, um, the sudden need to basically uh, lay people off. And that's going to be waves of layoffs on unemployment and underemployment hitting all kinds of Russian workers. And um, that's from, you know, auditors who have lost their jobs with, uh, with large Western auditing firms. And that's you know, people making cars or, or producing um, producing food products where there's where some critical ingredient in the supply chain is no longer available. I think that's got to have, a, you know, a pretty hard to predict but dramatic impact on on everything. Um, and it's really hard to see exactly what kind of unrest that might cause, but um, it, it will certainly cause trouble for local governors who have been appointed by Putin for the last 15 years um, and who suddenly have, un have local regional unrest. I think that's going to be a pretty significant thing that's going to happen. I think that's another thing that's worth mentioning about this sanctions, again, as Nancy was saying, in comparison to the sanctions we saw following the annexation of Crimea. These sanctions that have been recently imposed have many more significant long-term effects for the Russian economy. So it's not that just their immediate impact that needs to be considered, but also their longer-term impact. And I think the example of component parts for large sectors of the Russian economy is very worth thinking about. So after the annexation with Crimea and after that sanctions, Russia kind of ratcheted up an import substitution strategy, trying to kind of produce many more goods at home. But again, it couldn't, it cannot, it could not, and it still cannot produce many of the goods its industries need at home. For example, microchips. Yep. Yep. While the Russian government has tried to kind of innovate, Right. Innovation has not proceeded apace in many of the sectors. Right, So Russia has become much better at producing cheese domestically, ratcheting up agricultural mm -hmm. production since Crimea. 
But in terms of advanced technology, it is still very reliant on international partners, many of which have decided no longer to supply Russia with yeah. those parts. Also, it's important to think about these sanctions is how they've accelerated this idea that Western countries or maybe all countries in general, I'm going to stop talking about just Western countries, need to decrease their reliance on Russia's energy and gas mm -hmm. and oil. Right? And the, in particular, Germany. Right? Mm -hmm. Germany is a critical example of this. It used to seem inconceivable that Germany would say, no, we're going to end our dependence on Russian oil and gas, and we're going to do it in a matter of years. Right? But that seems to be the course that Germany is now pursuing. And it's likely to pursue it irrespective of how this kind of current crisis gets resolved. Right? Well, I, I was just going to go back to this this idea of an, of an off-ramp, right? I think one thing that, w that we're sort of agreeing on in, in the room is that this is going to be a, a longer conflict than, than any of us want to see um, because the ultimate decision to end this war can, is, is really in Putin's court. Um, you know, I think thinking of an, of an off-ramp, the only person who can conceivably offer Putin an off-ramp off that would be legitimate would be Zelensky. Mm -hmm. I, I think actually his room politically for, uh, for his scope of action that he can choose from is, is limited at this point. He, he can't give up Ukrainian territory and maintain legitimacy for, for his uh, political party or perhaps for any sort of democratically elected government in the future in Ukraine. So uh, I, I don't think that the West or NATO or uh, non-Western um, partners like Japan or South Korea, we, sh we shouldn't be talking about off-ramps. Zelensky is the one who can talk about, about off-ramps um, because at, at this point, you know, we can put pressure. That's our role as an outside party. But since it's not our war, we've chosen not to make it ours, mm -hmm. then I think the, the choice of off-ramps has to come from those who are, who are facing this uh, as a matter of life and death. Yeah, and I guess also very important what Putin does not uh, think about where, uh, he, when he was referring to the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was 15 republics, and Ukraine was producing a lot of goods and uh, byproducts and food. So, and Russia, if you think that in some regions now, it's not only like microchips, it's sugar shortage because Russia does not produce anything even food-wise. Yes, they have local farms, but local farms' uh, prices very high, not affordable to babushkas, not affordable to pensioners. That's why what Putin does, if you uh, follow, he increases the pensions because it's his electorate. He is afraid that if they go against him. That's why uh, Galodny Bund, I think it's very possible, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, starvation uh, rebellions, right? When people do not have food. But the problem is, will they blame Putin. They will blame the West. They will blame the Biden administration. They will blame uh, the, that disgusting European Union who wants to concur us. So, but not Bayari Plehi, Tsar Haroshi. Tsar is good, the aristocrats bad. So that's typical mentality of Russians. So I don't know that could give him some credits within. So, Lusa, I, I, I agree with that. I think that that question of who gets targeted with blame is really real. But if you are watching people, for instance, fighting to fighting over bags of sugar in grocery stores mm -hmm. right now, that's only going to get worse. the The dairy supply line is they pretend is 
is good and all domestic, mm -hmm. but pasteurization equipment, um, piping, you know, yeah. things we don't think of, the piping for pasteurization Little, equipment, that's yeah. been coming from Northern Europe for a mm -hmm. long time. They may need, you know, rennet or, or supplies that, that we non-professionals may not think of. And the, the moment those, the moment certain kinds of really important goods that people uh, that people believe are are sustaining their families' lives start to be less predictable in supply or vanish altogether. Um, it's one thing to say that, you know, blame this on NATO, but you're going to be yelling at the grocery store manager. You're going to be yelling mm -hmm. at the local, the local mayor and the local officials who you are, who, who are in front of your eyes. And that's going to cause, I think, regional and local and even, you know, micro conflicts that are going to be hard to control and hard to spin ideologically, I think. Yeah. I hope. <laughs> I also think it's very important to remember that what we've seen develop in Russia over the past 20 years is this hyper-personalized presidency, yes. right? Yes. And Putin has yes. built this hyper-personalized presidency where he has taken credit for everything. Right, for everything right? And given this kind of political mm -hmm. dynamic, at some point it's hard for me to see how people would not, right, again, eventually come to attribute blame to him Right? Since he has been the most visible right, face in Russian politics, right? again, from everything he does, the annual address and talk with the people. Right? Again, if press you've been, if yeah. you the press conference, right? if you've been taking credit right, for everything for 20 years, right, then you will eventually come to be blamed, particularly if the economic situation gets really bad. You're right. You can stave it off with the propaganda, which is what we've seen. You can stave it off with a great deal of spin. They've been paving the way right, for this blame game of blaming the West for the past uh, at least 10 years. Yeah. Right? I mean, again, it's been a decade where Russian television has spun a very particular narrative about how all things bad right, originate with the West. Right? And this idea of Russia as a besieged fortress mm -hmm. right, with enemies at the gates intent on Russia's destruction, right? this is not propaganda that just emerged since February, right? The groundwork for this narrative has been in place and kind of spun over the past 10 years. But at the same time, and this seems to be not just a case in Russia, but in other countries, right? when the economic situation gets bad enough, right? and I think the economic situation in Russia is going to get pretty darn bad pretty darn quickly, no, no amount of spin, I think, is going to convince people not to attribute blame to the government. Again, how long that takes, how long you can stave it off, right? particularly if you control all media channels, right? that is hard to fathom, but that is hard to guess. But at the same time, I do think you can have a very kind of precipitous economic decline and then blame towards the government. Got into a little bit of this, and Nancy, you were talking a, a bit about layoffs and you know the resulting kind of fallout from some of these sanctions. I've been curious. I haven't seen a lot about it um, outside of the videos of people fighting over sugar. But what is day to day life for uh, like for common Russian citizens, not part of the Kremlin? How have the sanctions impacted them? I guess outside of sugar, um, what is what is daily life like living under under these um, sanctions? So I think people are really worried about medicine. Mm -hmm. 
and they're they're worried for their own families, um, but they're worried for their communities, their extended networks. I think at some level, you know, key medicines, insulin, uh, you know, cholesterol control drugs. A lot, I think I think there's there's were and 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 this was. The number one thing people talked about when they worried about the collapsing economy in 1990, 91, 92, was how am I going to get, you know, my, my grandmother's babushka needs her medicine. Um, and so I think people are thinking ahead and trying to game out what do we need to actually get through. And there's a bunch of mythos about how you survive mm-hmm. uh, when everything breaks down. And then there's there's practice and reality and unanticipated realities. So people are really trying to think through those realities. And then that is very stressful. It also causes people to talk to each other about the stress they feel around certain supply chain um, breakdowns. I think it's going to play out really differently across different regions and areas and big cities versus smaller towns. I think there's going to be, it's it's hard to predict how that's going to play. That's what I want to mention, disconnect between the uh, between Moscow, St. Petersburg, big cities and the rural areas, because rural areas still, uh, talking to some of my relatives, they do not have any problems so far because supply chains still in their regions and they uh, Zakrama, right? They have, uh, but they do not think to the extent because personally they probably didn't know even that the medicine is uh, imported from uh, European countries or India or especially Hungary, Hung- Hungarian pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and I ask them and they say, so far we're good. We have everything. Yes, dollar is high. But we have food, and that's also a stereotype of people who survived, for example, in the Soviets, like us. We were there, and I remember the shortages of food, lines for the bread, miles and miles when I was a kid, the coupon, Stallone. Uh, people do not think it could come back because we they had already 30 years of that importation, of that imported goods, and they kind of hooked up on that, but they still believe they can maintain their gardens. They still maintain duchess will provide for them, but they don't think that fertilizers on all of the chemicals, or even seeds, which imported from even post-Soviet countries. So it's going to hit them eventually, but so far they totally assured we survived the Soviet Union, we survived shortages, we could maintain. With the a little disclaimer that in the Soviet Union, they produce within, as I said. So that's why it's going to soon be very critical. I think that's also something that we also have to discuss, the fact that at least the people that I've talked to in Russia are alarmed. But there is, particularly for the generations that did see the collapse of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. who lived through you know, Gorbachev's reforms, right? who lived through the 1990s, there is this idea that, oh, we've seen dire economic conditions before, right? we can make it through another round of dire economic conditions. So I think for economic effects of the kind that we've been discussing to be really felt on the political front, it will take time because this is not a society that has been just used to good times and only good times. There are many people who have actually experienced worse economic conditions than they're experiencing now. 
But the, I absolutely agree, Masha. I think there's also the generation that grew up without the 1990s deficit and didn't quite or, or were very young when it happened. They don't quite realize what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so for those that generation that now has maybe young kids, they're like, what, what, what do you mean I can't go do this? Or what do you mean this is now cost twice what it cost a month ago? And there's there's a lot of pressure economic pressure going on in those in that sort of age group for thinking about how am I going to entertain my kids? How am I going to feed my kids those milk products where the supply line might be, you know, changed at some point? Um, so there's a little bit of worry for those who haven't experienced this yet also starting to accumulate, but it's not quite there. It's an economic pressure for younger generations that are like, we just want this to end for economic reasons, first and foremost. It's a good point because generational gaps, and that's what I also was thinking mm-hmm. uh, as a person who was born in Soviet Union and survived that. I know that uh, younger generation didn't, do not have those skills, right? So that's why if babushka still can scrap some f- uh, flour and make something, they will do that for sure. The uh, older generation will make it. But the younger generation, dependency on the social media, dependency on the businesses related to the uh, digitalized economy, right, which is cut right now completely and not to be restored. And uh, I guess it's going to be very – and that's what I always have in my mind, what I hope the generation who could rebel will be Generation Z, generation of the youngsters who were born in the end of 90s and uh, raised in 2000 because they already know how to go to Starbucks, how to do... And that seems very uh, ridiculous, but it's literally could be impacting. But also the case, maybe there will be a mass mass exodus of that generation. Mm -hmm. And you know that Putin uh, put in place right now to withhold IT specialists within the country, not let them... Mm-hmm. Out, so it was an order, and his memorandum he signed a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. so to hold them from uh, brain drain, right? So that's yeah. a very interesting. But I tendency. think those are the kinds of pressures that you know we were talking before about what might bring about regime mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. Even before this, there was a, a clear demographic gap in support for Putin. It's more the older generations already retired people who supported him more. Um, polling data from the Levada Center on attitudes towards Ukraine showed that younger people had more positive attitudes towards Ukraine. They weren't buying into the narrative that it was a Nazi country. Mm-hmm. Um, they they were not uh, in favor of uh, solving problems with Ukraine through through force. So, you know, if... And and in a sense, right, Putin has long been facing a demographic problem politically. This could be the thing that finally mobilizes young people to to reimagine what politics looks like. The difficulty is they don't have experience Mm -hmm. in mobilization. They don't have experience in politics because the system has locked them out. But they have a list of grievances of which this is just the last one. But the whole system being sort of set up to favor older generations is reason in and of itself. So they're highly motivated. The question is, you know, what resources do they do they have even just thinking of social social capital? Yeah, I, I also think it's really important to 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 really think about simple arithmetic um, and think about what we actually mean when we're talking about those generations. If you were born in 1980, you spent 10 years in Soviet schools, you know, for, you know, until you were 10. But then 1991, 
things start changing. You got you graduated college, you know, if you went to college around two thousand. If you're born in 1980, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So that that so-called younger post-Soviet generation is uh, is it encompasses more of the population. I I estimate it. It really encompasses people 45 and younger. And there's a ton of variegation in that. That in that category, but that is a huge, especially because life expectancy is still pretty low in Russia. Older people are are much less empowered than older people are outside of Russia, for you know, in in the U.S. and and Europe. So that that you know that generation of people who are not really Soviet, who don't have dacha potato growing uh, skills, is actually a larger part of the population than probably even Putin thinks. <laughs> Yeah, but the problem with this generation, because I'm that generation, we lost the opportunity to raise our voices because yeah. we were the most perestroika generation, was the most politically active generation. And when I went to college in 2002, it still was relatively free, a lot of freedom, right? But when we graduate and we already started living within the Putin's mindset, unfortunately, the fears of the generations ahead of them, the parents' fears, especially if you're easily persuaded, will become like, do not involve, uh, get involved in politics because yeah. you remember the Soviet and that generational influence because we have the trauma, mental trauma, which comes to us uh, from one part of generation to another, and I agree, but unfortunately, I've seen my even peers who absolutely pro-Putin's because the mentality of being uh, led by the leader, by the czar, by the father, by the god, that's Putin. Putin's image has been created. And that's why I have hopes only in the younger generation, because unfortunately, and I agree that uh, I see the Instagram posts of my friends there, and they mourn the situation. They uh, totally devastated how to raise children, how to be, but they powerless because they've been already uh, suppressed by the regime once. And they come back to that uh, notion, walls have years, and let's go to the kitchen and discuss in the at kitchen talk. So, but I agree with you, the potential, if they now uh, awaken, but the statistics, even the anti-war protests, it's pretty gruesome because we see the uh, protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg. In Perm, it's 80 people out of 1 million population, right? So that's why you can count that it will not work as we hope for. So, but, yeah, generation might play the role. But I think that's also true, right? Because we have had Putin for the past 20-plus years, depending if you count his initial stint as prime minister, right? This is yep. why it's getting yep. hard to date. Mm-hmm. Right. For the younger generation, too, all they have seen is this particular type of politics, right? And I think that has either made you pro-Putin or apolitical, right? But I think more generally, you can actually talk about people losing a sense of agency, right? The past 20 years have amply demonstrated to many people in Russia that you cannot change the system or so they believe. they've come to believe right? because you haven't actually seen any change in the political system for over two decades. In other words, possibly the whole life of uh, kids who are now in their 20s. And I think that kind of loss of agency is something that also needs to be considered. You might be dissatisfied. You might have a list of grievances. But until you come to believe that you can actually do something about it and affect change, grievances will not translate into political action. 
If I was a everyday Russian citizen, say I drove a cab in the in Moscow, and I, and I woke up in the morning to get ready for my day, what are the news sources that I would tune into? Like, what is available to the average citizen, particularly now with so much blacked out, so many social media shut down? What are the sources of news for, you know, regular citizens of Russia? Where in Russia are you? Yeah. Right? Let's, that, say, let's, that say, is, let's say in Moscow, just, just for... No, I, th I think people in Moscow very much... Off, many people in Moscow will turn to the kind of news channels that we turn to through their cell phones, right? Smartphones, and you can navigate VPNs, and you can... Uh, Kind of have an idea of what's available, right? But if you choose to, if you've lived your whole life relying on state television for your news, you will continue to rely on state television for your news. But outside the big cities, it is indeed state television, state newspapers, which are the primary source yeah. of information and have been. So it is, it is some of a matter of choice as well as habit. Where have you been getting your news from for the past 20 years? And is where you're going to end up getting your news in the present crisis moment. One one problem, too, is that even if you have a VPN and know how to use it, that doesn't mean that when you access Instagram and Facebook and other sort of forbidden resources that you are looking for or are interested in information that contradicts the, the narrative. So just as here in the U.S., we know about information siloing and how the algorithm on your social media feed feeds you what you've been looking at in the past. It feeds you up more of it. The same thing happens to, to Russians when they look at, at algorithms on Western social media platforms. So if they have not been inclined to uh, question the regime and to look for, the, for information that challenges that that's narrative, they're not going to be seeing it now. Mm. Um, or, or just like we do, you might go, oh, wait, what? I hear this thing that's challenged me. I'm going to go look for a piece of information about that. You go maybe search one, maybe carefully on a VPN today, and then you maybe go back to your normal stream of information that you search for. So just like us, these pe people, are, people are creatures of habit um, until they come to a point where either the information they're getting is just really not seeming right and that may happen as bodies of soldiers return to Russia that may be one turning point for a switch in how to find your information um, or increasing shortages might be another to understand why and how that's happening right for example but until those shock moments come we're all pretty comfortable in our streams of information unless we train ourselves not to be so just like us, Russians are no different in that sense. And all of the, that's another story. So how many people been hooked up to these independent media? So uh, let's say TV Ray endorsed less than 1% of the population yeah. of the whole Russia. Echo Moskvy, which was shut down, uh, has been very contrad contradictory for the last 10 years because Venediktov was pretty much leaning towards Kremlin because he didn't have a choice. Or Novaya Gazette, which was shut down today, right? So it's not a huge demographic population which reads those. But what people do right now, even though they have VPN, if they go to Twitter, for example, and they see tweets, and they have personal connections to Ukraine, might be from friends, from families, that could bring some news. Uh, otherwise, of course, that's what uh, the scare uh, of Putin, of his fear. That's why he shut down everything, because he thinks that the Soviet Union, he could uh, issue uh, Pravda or Komsomolskaya Pravda, and people, uh, he doesn't understand there is other 
things around. So I guess also word of mouth, also uh, experience, like people who were uh, in blockaded Leningrad, they protested in St. Petersburg and they talk to people because they've experienced that. So I guess that's a lot of, uh, it could be a rumor, which is a great information source in Russia, rumor as a news, uh, word of mouth, and some people tend to listen to. And if they hear, okay, there is a story. But also the biggest uh, propaganda machine, because I've heard a lot of like, oh, but what about what people trying to do? They're trying to justify the war. Right. Oh, uh, what about biological weapon? What about those bats and monkeys and the United States tries to? So it's a, a rumor could be a positive and rumor could be a rumor of fear. And also people understand people not blind. They know it's war. But because they need to find within that realm of living to justify why we have to uh, advocate for that war. Uh, we hear this, okay, let's take, and we take responsibility out of our shoulders. And where regime comes to the end, the 100%, the population will say, we always war against that. We always yeah. war against that. I'd like to raise one really important or interesting point related to what you've said, Lyosha, which is so important. I've heard from some people within Russia that, well, sure, of course, it's state-run, t- you know, this first channel. We know that this is a certain storyline. We know that this is propaganda. We know we're not getting maybe the full picture. But where do we find it? Right? And this is out. This is spatial. It's generational. Uh, so outside of, say, Moscow, St. Petersburg, Ekaterinburg, thinking big cities that are possibly more diverse than others, people don't know where else to turn to. And they say, yeah, well, sure, we know we're getting propaganda. We just don't know what we're not being told is mm-hmm. true. So where do you turn when you feel that way? But it's also, Valerie, this is much more your line of expertise. But I do think that people in general have become far more distrust full of all news sources, right? So even if you distrust the government news source, you might be just as distrustful of CNN or even The Guardian, right? And I think that does complicate our analysis of what people are reading, how they're interpreting it, and how they might act upon it. Because you definitely, Jessica was saying, with the... People in Russia whom I know and with, with whom I've been in touch with are skeptical in general. Right? They don't believe the government, but they also don't believe in the benign intentions of the West. Right? And so there's just this atmosphere of deep, deep cynicism, right? which is going to kind of complicate Right. Absolutely. The search for truth. Absolutely, yeah. Masha. And to and and that combined with the need to for those who understand a deficit economy, right? The older generations particularly, mm-hmm. this sort of cynicism and lack of knowing which direction to move in terms of trust, along with facing a deficit economy, tends to make one hunker down, right? And and the possibility of losing your job if you speak up in any kind of way that isn't great, mm-hmm. um, at least in this regime. Those are lots of reasons for people to just hunger down and maybe not say anything or act. I mean, one of the things I think is quite interesting, um, and this goes to, to Masha's point about, about cynicism, is there's a lot of interesting things that happen with cognitive dissonance and how people react to information that, that challenges them. So there's been uh, quite a few anecdotal cases of 
you know, Russian speakers in Ukraine with family in Russia. And they, they and actually even one case that I, I think it was The Guardian covered of a, a young Ukrainian woman whose parents are in uh, Russian-occupied Donetsk, and she was living in, in um, Mariupol. And she was uh, trying to tell them about the bombings and the, the shelling and how horrible it was. And they said, oh, well, yes, we know, you know, the Ukrainian government is doing yeah. this to you. And she was trying to, you know, rather desperately to convince them, and they, they didn't want to hear it. So I think, you know, one of the things that happens is if you've, if you've been absorbing disinformation for decades, first of all, information that contradicts that you're likely to assume is wrong or that it's trying to mislead you because the, the information you're hearing from state sources tells you that everyone else is trying to mislead you because they want to weaken the state. They want to undermine right, the project. They want to destroy Russia. So anything that comes from outside, you're automatically going to be suspicious of. Even if you're slightly more savvy of a consumer and have this sense of, oh, I, I understand, right? This is state-controlled media. I remember hearing about that from Soviet times or I lived through it through Soviet times. Of course, I have to take what they say with a grain of salt. You still might think that everyone else's media is similarly biased. Um, and that kind of cynicism leads to passivity. I can't trust anything. There's no way of knowing the truth. So I, I'm just going to be apolitical. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that's difficult about disinformation is, is that once it's prevalent in the system, moving beyond that it requires contact with physical realities. So I think things like realizing, oh, wow, I can't get my favorite kind of coffee anymore. Mm -hmm. um, sugar is is in short supply. Um, you know, why might the government not want me on Instagram of all places, right? Uh, and then, you know, hearing about family members who are killed in Ukraine. I think it's only that very physical, visceral thing that can possibly lead one to question what one's hearing. What happens next, though, is not simple, right? Like there's a whole bunch of different ways that that visceral reaction can can push you. Um, but I don't think there's a simple intellectual solution. And, and there's been some kind of creative ones. So um, the uh, anonymous, for example, has tried to hack into mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Russian TV channels and show, you know, what's happening in Ukraine. Um, but I mean, if you imagine, right, what if, if an anonymous hacked into your favorite TV channel and posted things, even if it were true, would you believe it? <laughs> if hackers were showing you something, what would be your bar for, for trusting what you were, were seeing from an or anonymous Or would you group? blame the CIA oh. for, ha right. Right. for hacking right? <laughs> Russian state media because you have been led for 10 years to believe that something like that is exactly what the CIA wants to do to, again, create political instability in Russia? Oh, but also yeah. they using very interesting. They using Fox News and Tucker Carlson show showing it in Russia. Saying you see, even in the West, they supporting yeah. us. So and that's kind of very interesting narrative. Okay, we have our channels, our propaganda, and only one protest of Maria Vsanikova, which was not live. Russian TV is not live. It's all not broadcasting yeah. live. You have to understand that it was recorded, so not everyone saw that, I believe, except if you're on YouTube. But also when they, like, you see, okay, they say, oh, John Rowland, she was uh, about cancel culture. And they're using, they play in the narrative, they play in that, uh, trying to say that even the West, that rotten West with the cancel culture. So they try and try and try. And to a certain extent, it will work because Russians like, okay, we, we know that probably there is propaganda, but there is a source coming from the 
U.S. Because Russians, it's an ambiguous feeling, hating U.S. and wanted to be in U.S. Yeah. Hating U.S. and want to live in U.S. Sure. So it's been since the collapse of the yeah. Soviet Union. So an, another a dimension of that, and it goes to something that, that Valerie said, um, that's hard for hard for us to see f- if we're not actually following that media is the the uh, very organized, very sophisticated, very proactive and steady um, false attribution. So, um, you know, if there's an art- another artillery shelling of Mariupol um, and, you know, all good sources show that that's coming from Russian forces. Nevertheless, that can super easily be blamed on Ukrainian forces. And they've been doing that since 2014 uh, in in uh, in Donbass and, you know, attributing every military strike to Ukrainian forces, even when they were carried out by Russians. They do that constantly, steadily, and very, very aggressively and proactively so that that, let's call it false flag. I like to think of that as gaslighting Mm -hmm. because it's just like interpersonal gaslighting. It's, you know, somebody beating their spouse but saying, you know, you're beating yourself, basically. And over time, we know interpersonally that creates cognitive, psychic, and emotional um, and communicative uh, dissonance and breakdown. And that's the kind of, you know, it's kind of a false flagging. It's constantly turning attribution upside down and inside out. And that has a, a very powerful long-term effect where families argue with each other about who just bombed them. Hmm. That's a good segue to the question I was going to ask that uh, about the whole Kremlin narrative of needing to denazify Ukraine. I, I feel like anyone watching Western media is completely shocked and like <laughs> puzzled that anyone would believe something like this. Yet that's the narrative they've run with. That's what they're sticking to. And do yeah. people buy it? Like, how did they sell it? What is yeah. their proof? Is the proof by blaming Ukraine for everything? Or yeah, mm-hmm. some people do buy it. Absolutely. Yeah. Lots of people buy it. Sure. Uh, part of this, part of it, and we have lots of exer- experts around the table, so I'm going to say just very little here, is pulling at heartstrings of, of people who lived through or learned about the Great Patriotic War in certain mm-hmm. ways. And so in the Great Patriotic War, which is World War II here, mm-hmm. uh, Russia fought against German Nazis, right, for the defeat of the Nazi regime. And so right now to call Ukrainian fighters generally – Nazis, right? This is like right to the heart, the right to the emotional heart uh, to keep warfare going, right? We've got to get rid of the Nazis, must get rid of the Nazis at all costs. I'm going to let others speak. Oh, but the problem also that it, that narrative has been boiling in the Russian propaganda for a long time because they referenced Stepan Bandera, who refused, uh, so he, who led his people in a national way to get out of the colonial regime of the Kremlin and Moscow, and he collaborated with Nazis, which is like, he's very controversial, but also very patriotic figure in Ukrainian history, and uh, uh, glory to Ukraine, glory to heroes. It's his motto, it's his slogan. And that's why Putin uses that, because you see there is a Russian population, the Russian-speaking people, and uh, the the Zelensky, who is Jewish, by the way, and whose uh, great-parents were perished probably in Babi Yar, uh, you see, they're trying to suppress us. We have to rescue. That's what he did in Crimea, exactly on the uh, uh, smaller scale, right? So, and for Russian, and believe me, we've been 
grained with this idea since we, and I was born May 9, 1985, which is a victory day for Russia, and it's disgusting. Why? Because the propaganda machine, we've been growing up with that narrative that never again, never again. It was, And I, I agree, Jessica, it was easier for people to persuade the Russian population there is Nazis who want to take over the particular, and uh, because of independence, because they want to be free, because Ukraine is uh, doing that, and you see how they uh, and they change the narrative with the bombing of Luhansk and Donetsk, and they say, yes, it's Ukrainian people, Ukrainian army bombed the kindergarten. Not that Putin started annexation of Crimea and Donbass and Luhansk, and it happens right now when I tell my people, Kharkiv, Mariupol, no, 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 we just defending our soldiers yep. there. So that's why on that pretext of the war and great patriotic war, it's much easier to persuade. But also the gap in generation, uh, uh, the ideology lives only three generations. The younger generation, ha uh, they do not know anything about the war. They hear it's glorified. They know it's a good thing what was happening, not thinking that it was, again, not Russia, but the Soviet yeah. Union and Ukrainian front and Belarus front, which basically were fortress for the country. Yeah, I think Putin's been really quite sophisticated for at least the past 15 years of using the memory of mm -hmm. World War II as a foreign policy tool. Mm -hmm. So it's not just Ukraine that's accused of Nazism, all the former uh, Soviet states, states, the Baltic yeah. states mm -hmm. and Poland are accused of the, the same thing. Um, there's even this this crazy uh, piece of disinformation going around online that that tries to convince you that uh, NATO's symbol, that the NATO star, is yeah. actually descendant of the of the swastika, which, right? I see you raising your eyebrows. Yes, it's totally crazy. But uh, if you believe that the West was sympathetic to Nazism, um, and the, the the rhetoric has really shifted, so that you know in the in the story that's told. The Soviet Union, which has now become allied with Russia in ways that are really quite intriguing, so that it's really Russia, not mm -hmm. not the Soviet Union. Um, and Stalin, I guess, was part of that as well in sort of using Russian nationalism as a, as a tool during the war. But Putin has, has, has resurrected that. Russia, the story goes, won World War II single-handedly yes. because no one mm -hmm. else came to participate. The U.S. didn't enter the war. Britain didn't enter the war uh, until you know 1944. Uh, if it hadn't been for for Russia, nothing you know would have would have happened. Uh, on the one hand, that story works because the losses that the Soviet Union faced were were huge. Mm -hmm. Um, but it ignores a lot of, of reality of what happened elsewhere. I think another thing that's interesting, in the West, we find it very hard to conceive how you can accuse a state with a democratically elected president who is of a Jewish background of, as being Nazis, right, as being the descendant of Nazis. It's so bizarre. But in the way that the history of the Great Patriotic War is told, the war against Nazism and against fascism is not thought of as fundamentally uh, to do with the Holocaust yes. or or the murder of Jews. So in the Soviet period, the memorialization of what happened, um, the the uh, killing places where in, in Eastern Europe people were, Jews were killed not in, in camps, but but by being shot, those killing fields are, are memorialized with, with Soviet 
era signs that say, right, here are the victims of fascism. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they were Jews and they were targeted because they were were Jews, that was not talked about. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was not part of the Soviet era narrative. And, you know, the post-Soviet era in Russia has not led to a reimagining of what happened, right? Which those kinds of debates are happening and they're messy and they're not simple, but those kinds of conversations about what happened are happening in Ukraine and in in other post-Soviet societies, but they aren't happening in Russia. So, you know, in the West, we look at them like, well, but if Zelensky's elected, what? Right. But that's because we have a particular image of what Nazism and fascism are are about that really ties them to um, this this issue of, 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 of Jews as being the primary victims of fascism. But that's not obvious as a connection for for Russians today. It's fascinating. But I also think it might be worth considering that um, the pretext for the invasion might not have been as deeply thought as we're arguing it to be, right? I think there's a non-trivial chance that Putin and his advisors believed that they could secure a quick and easy victory. I mean, all indications are that they believe that Ukrainian soldiers would simply put down their weapons, that many Ukrainians would take the Russian side or not object to rejoining Russia. So I'm not sure how long they thought about uh, the crafting of the kind of pretext for the invasion. I mean, it's convenient because there's kind of a historical basis for it. You know, people understand the vocabulary, you can unveil it. But I think they thought, well, we'll need it for that week or two until we secure our victory. And then we can transition to saying, look, Ukraine wanted to rejoin Russia, right? so I think they were ready to. They would be ready to pivot from that narrative, as I think they, we're already seeing. You see much more in terms of defense of Lugansk and Donetsk, right, rather than the original denazification of Ukraine. Right? But, but this, is, uh, if you look at the Russian uh, propaganda machine right now, what symbols they use? For example, that Z symbol, right? So, which was the. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the SS uh, troops and also the symbol of liberation in Greece in 1968 when the black uh, colonels were mm-hmm. removed from power. So, and also uh, they what is now approaching May 9, approaching the anniversary. And in a lot of uh, rhetoric they use, we're gonna win by the victory day. And that mobilizes people because it's a momentum of highest emotional um, connection to that past, right? So, and they using that Z with the uh, Georgian uh, ribbon, which is a very problematic symbol, of course, even in the Soviet history. And that's how the symbols, the symbolic politics of Russia work, because Russians, they're not analytical in many senses. They appeal to emotional uh, connections. They appeal to that. And that's why I guess we're going to see that uh, and Putin now, which they said, yes, the war, not the war, the special, oper- the special of military operation of liberation in two days. Mm-hmm. Now they're saying, but we do this and this. And in three uh, days, they're going to say, we always wanted to do that. We always yes. wanted to do, 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 do. So the narrative and honestly, I do not know how. Uh, how and I agree with uh, you because about the. Nazis and uh, Jews, and because it's still anti-Semitism very present in Russia, and they have no connections, and they have no connections to any ethnic cleanses, any uh, purges, because Russians think that, yeah, and it's very easily becomes the point when Putin, that's our generation remembers, our parents' generation remembers, 
But youngsters, they do not know what the war was about. What it was like all republics, all land lease of the Roosevelt in 1942 opened, right? So that's why it's easier to manipulate. Hmm. Where do you all get your information right now? So what do you find to be <laughs> what do you find to be trustworthy sources? I mean, I know it's difficult during any war um, to find, um, I guess, uh, sources that isn't or that aren't completely biased or that aren't, um, I guess, spreading disinformation or trying to, you know, um, I guess, foster a certain narrative. So what do you do when you're looking at this? How do you how do you go about analyzing what's happening? I think the most important thing is to really challenge yourself to look at a diversity of sources. Yeah. So, and I mean that in all possible senses. So one thing is to make an effort to seek out Ukrainian voices, whether from Ukrainian scholars or journalists. Um, so uh, a shout out here to the Kiev Post okay. uh, and Ukrainian World. They have a great podcast. Um, also a variety of, of Western news sources. Um, I also look at uh, Telegram and I look at what is being said by fighters in Donetsk and what uh, Russian state media is, is saying. Um, so I think it's really important to, to, to read widely, think about what might motivate someone to say something. Um, and before you believe any one particular fact, look Wait, don't look for confirmation because you'll fall into the silo of you can find confirmation for anything you look for. Just wait 24 hours, 36 hours, because it is a war. Mm -hmm. The initial information that comes out, even if whoever's reporting it is trying to be straightforward and honest, it's not always clear. So wait 24 to 36 hours before passing judgment on what you think is or is not the, the case. Don't share things until you've had that, that waiting period to really think about it, um, to contextualize things. That That's my strategy. Yeah, things do tend to become much clearer after about 24 hours, yeah. and at least people tend to sift through the information a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, so I start with Twitter, but I have a very carefully curated, you know, set of, of accounts that I follow, and it's, you know, Kiev Post and a number of other Ukrainian sources. It's other European newspapers. It's uh, Al Jazeera, you know, it's it's sort of uh, balancing a number of sources, but also, um, so I, you know, I admit to be spending a lot of time on Facebook as well, but I have people I know in Kiev, I have people in in Odessa and and Lviv, and I have friends who are uh, are now out of Ukraine and and. Um, reading the things and seeing the pictures that people, especially in Kiev, are are posting to me is incredibly helpful. At, and and following the same people, you know, over over a period of time, and really understand how events are unfolding on the ground for people who are who are staying there, people who are running evacuation buses and so forth. To me, that's uh, you know, it's a different kind of news. It's not news exactly. It's uh, but it's really important grounding. Um, it's much harder to get that kind of grounding sense from people in Russia now. Telegram um, is helpful, but it's a little hard to, to navigate. Yeah, it's it's really a mess to navigate. Mess. So if you're not on Telegram, don't, don't, don't start. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a place to start looking for information. Yes, Begin right. elsewhere. 
for sure. But Novaya Gazeta and Medusa have been really important, They've, and Novaya yeah. is now going dark. So, anything else folks would like to throw out as far I as being trustworthy? Uh, to piggyback Nancy, so because I have connections to Ukraine, right, and I have people in Ukraine who are in the combat, and I know that we're all emotionally involved. We all dedicate. I try not to follow any Western news because they especially American outlets, if you look at the titles when they put, it's very diminishing and it's very problematic what they put on the headliners. And people usually judge by headline. They do not go into the article and they need oh, yeah. to sell. In capitalist world, they have to sell the product and they will use the war even for that, to get that. So I follow people in combat in Ukraine. I follow Kiev Independent, which is a group of uh, uh, very, let's say, uh, patriotically oriented people. I follow one of the LGBTQ plus uh, journalists in Kiev and uh, follow my friend from Kar Kharkiv who is, uh, was evacuating uh, the Karazin University to Poltava. So I try to use those sources. I cannot force myself. I cannot force myself to read Russian outlets. I cannot force myself to uh, see TV propaganda. I have had enough in my life of that. Uh, of watching. But uh, I agree, but also I understand that the propaganda works both ways, right? But seeing this devastation, seeing the Mariupol 90%, seeing the news they uh, kidnap the mayors and uh, kill them, I do not tend to not believe because I know it, how Putin operates. Sure. Yeah. Disappearance, all of the sudden. So for me, it's I kind of ninety percent. I'm sure that's true. It's a long track, right? It's yes. a lo long yeah. track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And Kiev Pride is like one of the uh, organization I also follows. So people from the ground, and that's I guess for me most important. And I know it's not strictly analytical, but it's sure. also you can compare the backgrounds in your context and contextualize that. I agree to everything that's been said, but I do find it really important to try to listen to the Russian media as well. Mm -hmm. I find it difficult at times, <laughs> but in terms of understanding how this uh, special operation is being yeah. fought, how this war is being moved along, difficult but important to do. I think the question is, you know, you've different questions will require different news sources, right? So in other words, if you want to understand how this special military operation is being presented to the Russian public, yeah. as well as how the sanctions are being presented to the Russian public, you have to follow the Russian sources, yeah. right? Yeah. Obviously, it's not for factual coverage of the military operation in Ukraine, but there are these notable shifts that I think do allow you to exactly. better understand kind of what the authorities in Russia are thinking, planning, or at least Oftentimes there are concerns, right? If you see in Kamersant or something like that, mm -hmm. all of these newspapers about how the sanctions can be easily overcome, you know very well. Right. Or, yeah. or the fact that, <laughs> that sanctions terrified of how yes, the sanctions yeah. are yeah. going to affect the economy, or, right? Or the understanding of why some Russian people are thanking Putin for the sanctions. Yeah. That requires looking at Russian yes. news sources yeah. to understand how that's been twisted. Yes. Yeah, And Kamersant has actually been really interesting yes. to follow. Mm -hmm. yes. Small stories that give mm -hmm. you clues about specific supply chain breakdowns, um, even when they're cast in a in a kind of positive light, the the information mm -hmm. can can sometimes be there. I, I really love following mm -hmm. Commerçant for that I reason. I guess you also have to follow the local 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 Ye newspapers uh, yes. who print yes. amazing Absolutely. how they uh, 
basically undermining Putin in a very that prohibitive way, following the law. Nothing is going on here on the front page of the absolutely local rural newspaper. I guess you're right to the point that some of them trying to, in the, in the capacity they have, to kind of send the message. Which is going right back to reading between the lines, yes. yep. which we can think of <laughs> as a Soviet state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think actually thinking about your question, yeah. it matters where you are in your information journey about this. Mm -hmm. So if you're just starting out, <laughs> right, then the first thing to do is, you know, find some reliable news sources um, coming from within Ukraine. Then, right, think about broadening your, your diet of... of uh, of international news sources, including those international journalists who are on the ground in Ukraine. And then if you're sort of like, you know, level three committed to knowing more, then start looking at, at Russian news sources, because in order to contextualize it and to read between the lines, you, you need to know more about the context and what's what's happening um, so that you can, can see what's being said by what isn't being said. Yeah, but I, I want to echo something that Losha said, and I think other people have have hinted at this. Um, I I don't disbelieve the stories of atrocities being carried out by Russian military forces. Um, there are American news outlets that want us to be skeptical and cynical about Ukrainian reportage. But when, and, you know, the first couple days when the stories of people from Mariupol being deported mm -hmm. and, and put through filtration camps in Russia came out, you know, a completely, you know, completely illegal in terms of the laws of, of and rules of war. Um, I felt okay. I need to. I need to see more reporting on this. I need really grounded sources on this. But a week later, it's abundantly clear that that has been happening. Um, and so I, I, I do not believe that we should be acting skeptical about reports of atrocity. Mm -hmm. There is atrocity going on. The war is full of atrocity. And that atrocity is a part of um, this, this sadocratic governance style that, that Putin has been um, cultivating and perfecting for 22 years. I, I mean, I'm speaking for myself here, that, but that is my attitude when I read reports of atrocities on the ground um, carried out by uh, by Russian forces. I think there has been a deliberate attempt by the Zelensky government to um, insist that Ukrainian forces behave humanely to POWs. I'm sure that in all cases they're not behaving humanely, but I think there is a statewide um, demand for POWs to be treated under the rules of law because that's crucial for Zelensky's, for the Kiev government's um, PR campaign. Um, so, you know, but, but I, I don't, I don't react skeptically or cynically to reports of atrocity. There's so much evidence that atrocities are happening. I think we could probably talk about many more aspects of, um, the situation right now for probably many more hours, but, um, I think I'll, uh, try to bring it to a close at the moment. I don't know if there's anything anybody would like to add here before I kind of close things up. It seems almost an outdated phrase from where we started with our first panel with, with these 
amazing participants on March 1st. But to me, the, the phrase, no war, still applies. Um, we can't say there has been no war at this point, certainly, or that it has been short. But let's just stop. Putin, stop this war. And glory to Ukraine, glory to heroes. That's Slava what Ukraine. Slava, Slava Ukraine, Slava Giroy. All right. Well, thank you all for uh, for joining the podcast today. I'm sure we'll we'll gather again uh, down the road. I have I have no doubt. Um, and until next time, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive producer, vice president for communications, Laura Jack. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Ketrael Pritz. Research assistance provided by Colgate sophomore and media relations intern, Marianma Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.